When I was in fourth grade, I decided that I wanted to learn to play soccer. And so I signed up for a team. Now by fourth grade, some of the kids have played for a long time. They started out in kindergarten or earlier, and I was just getting started. And to add to that, I was small for my age and a little bit intimidated by some of the bigger players, some of the players who had been there for a long time. I loved to play, but it was a little frightening to me. I was shy and nervous and intimidating, and to add to that, I wasn't exceptionally good at it. Um, my team was undefeated my first year of playing. I was not much help in that effort. But the, the coach was handing out trophies at the end of the year. And with each trophy he handed out, he had a special remark for each player. And so to one, he said, for the most goals scored this year. And he handed a, a trophy to the next player, and he said, for the most saves and the most aggressive on the field. And he got to me, and he said, for the most improved player this year. I took that as kindness. It might not have been. <laughs> but something clicked in me when he said that. I, I didn't feel like I was a very good player, but what he did was help me to see that I was a better player at the end of the year than I was at the beginning of the year. I had improved, and it it lit a fire under me. It encouraged me to sign up for another season, uh, probably to my team's dismay. Uh, and I took a soccer ball with me wherever I went. Wherever I went, I was, I was dribbling it around, I was practicing, uh, we visited family and, and the soccer ball was right there with me. And the next season, under that same coach with that same team, I was starting. Well, that coach, maybe without realizing it, gave me confidence encouragement. I felt emboldened on the soccer field. As fifth grade soccer goes, I got to be pretty good. My guess is that most of us could tell a story that's similar to that. Someone who, who came alongside us and offered words of affirmation and encouraged us to press forward. We were emboldened by their words to face what was ahead. I was emboldened by what someone saw in me, growth and potential. But this morning, we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 1. We'll read of the emboldened witness of the Apostle Paul, who was emboldened not by his own strengths or his own abilities, but by the new realities of the kingdom of God, which he came to know in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Word of the Lord. 
I believed, therefore I have spoken. Paul is one of Scripture's boldest witnesses. He seems completely unafraid, unafraid to confront sin in the church, unafraid to speak to crowds, to debate with philosophers, to face imprisonment. He appears unafraid to travel, and the threat of consequences never seems to really deter him. He never makes a reservation before he goes where God is calling him, never calls ahead to make sure things are okay, never books a room at the Holiday Inn Express, or, or places a call to a friend to make sure he can crash at his place that week. He just goes where God tells him. And Paul suffered for his message. He suffered for the gospel, but he was not defeated, and he was not deterred. He was a bold witness. Where did his boldness come from? Is that just a character trait of, of Paul? Sometimes boldness can be a character flaw. Was it just simply his personality? Or was there more? I believed, said Paul, and so I spoke. Was it really that simple? I don't know about you, but I have known people who have beliefs that they definitely should not speak, uh, especially at family reunions. You know that uncle. But those words do not belong to Paul. He's quoting them. They come from Psalm 116, and the context of the psalm tells us a lot about Paul's intentions in this passage. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And this is the verse that Paul quotes. I trusted in the Lord when I said, or as 2 Corinthians quotes it, I believed, therefore I have spoken. I am greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. The psalmist is hurt, and Paul's reference about believing and speaking isn't merely a belief in Jesus. He's referencing his own hurt. He's referencing his own calling. He's referencing the, the proclamation of belief in the midst of pain. And the psalm continues, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem, Praise the Lord. When Paul quotes this verse, he quotes it terribly out of context. If a seminary student quoted Scripture like that, they would fail their class. He quotes half an idea with none of the attached context, which leaves us with a, a kind of dilemma. 
did Paul not know how to read and apply Scripture? I believed and so I spoke. That could just as easily be a reference to boldly proclaiming our convictions, but this would be a poor reading of Scripture. Paul wasn't saying, hey, I'm just stating my beliefs the way we might hear it today to justify bad behavior. And Paul also wasn't quoting the psalm out of context. His quote was being used as a reference to the psalm as a whole. He pulled out those words in order to reflect on the whole psalm. Paul used this quote to evoke the emotion and situation of the psalm he was quoting in a similar way to what Jesus does on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That brief quote told to the ears of a, a Jewish population, many of whom had large parts of Scripture memorized, draws to mind the whole of Psalm 22 rather than merely those words in isolation. So what Paul is saying is, though I have suffered affliction, I, like the psalmist, believe in God's ability to redeem all things. The psalmist Paul quotes, said, the Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. And so these words of the psalm become the words of Paul. This proclamation of faith of the psalmist becomes Paul's proclamation of faith. The boldness in Paul's words is not the boldness of a belligerent witness. It's the boldness to trust in the God who raised Jesus. Everything that Paul writes, everything he does, everything he teaches is centered on one central reality, and that reality is that all of reality has changed. This cannot be overstated. This is central to the gospel. The order of the world has shifted. Everything has changed. The structure of reality is different now. The entire cosmos has turned inside out, and Paul knows it, and it's what he rests on. There was a time when the world believed that death was the final word. That was the end of a person, and so we used it to control others. Death was used to silence unpopular messages. Death was used to keep opponents in line. Death was a weapon for negotiation. Death was the ultimate power because there was nothing after it. It was finality. Death is the power we use when we say, I expect you to do things my way, to conform to my expectations, or this is what the consequence will be. But Paul is rooted not in death, but in resurrection, because the resurrection of Jesus instantly changed the world's realities. No longer was death the final word, and hardships were worth enduring for the sake of the gospel, because the dead will be raised in Christ and can therefore no longer hold us captive to its power. In Jesus, everything has changed. And it breaks my heart when I see people who love Jesus struggling to trust in the ways of Jesus, who continue to cling to this weapon of death with threats and ultimatums rather than with love and patience and endurance. See, the kingdom of God is bigger than that. The cross of Christ accomplished so much more than to be used as a gotcha to further our own agendas and to organize the world according to our own opinions. The good news is better than that. 
It isn't what happens when the world runs our way. It's what happens when the world runs God's way. Paul is an emboldened witness, not because he has a skilled tongue or inherent gifts. He is emboldened by a life that is centered around the truth of the resurrection. Because when death is no longer the final word, but life instead is victorious, that is a world that runs God's way. It is written, says Paul, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Paul has been baptized in Christ. He died with Christ and has been reborn in Christ, and he knows that if the world does the worst to him that it possibly can, if it wields its weapon of death against him, he will know the victory of the resurrection. Christ will be victorious all the same. So, what does Paul have to fear? Death's power was in its permanence, and death is no longer permanent. Paul asks in his first letter to the Corinthian church, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because death has no hold over him, Paul is free to love without boundaries. He's free to proclaim the gospel without fear. There is no threat against him that is greater than God's power to resurrect. But Paul's posture is also so important. And I want, us, I, I want to invite us to reflect on our posture this morning. Not, not the way we're sitting or standing, not whether we're slouched or sitting straight, but what is our posture toward the people around us? In my experience, people care less about our positions than they do about our posture. They care less about what our opinions are and more about whether we love them and whether they can be safe with us. We all probably have experiences with people who we disagree with about core, central, essential things. We find those things to be very important, but those disagreements matter very little because we both maintain a posture of love toward one another. That relationship is more important than our disagreements. Through Acts and Paul's letter, letters, we see Paul is very clever. He's brave and bold and well-studied. He speaks eloquently. He acts shrewdly. But what he doesn't do is puff up his chest. He doesn't try and one-up people. He doesn't walk away around with an inflated ego or trample over the hardships that others face because it's inconvenient to his faith. Through much of 2 Corinthians, uh, we, we find that, that the book is dedicated to defending Paul's ministry. He, he doesn't defend himself out of a desire to be right. He defends himself out of a desire for Jesus to be made known. And the truth is, I feel like we don't see enough of that anymore. We see plenty of carefully structured arguments, lots of confrontation, plenty of insults being flung around, a lot of assuming the intentions of other people. One of maybe the most dangerous things we can do is assume why other people are acting the way they're acting. A lot of, of insisting that we have the right. We have the right to do what we're doing. But Paul was not emboldened to win arguments. He was emboldened to love like Jesus loves. 
and to proclaim and enact the love of Christ. He doesn't insist that he has the right not to suffer. He suffers willingly, recognizing instead that his suffering makes him more like Jesus. It's disheartening to me that on a regular basis, both inside and outside the church, I get to know a person first by their politics than, before, than, than by their faith. We seem more ready to share our political opinions than we are to share the gospel. And sometimes we conflate them to the point where we start to believe that they're one and the same. I can often tell a person's opinion about the president before I can tell the orientation of their heart toward God. And that's kind of depressing. If I could just make a humble observation, and I want you to feel free to disagree with me. Our political views tend to come from a desire to avoid suffering by enacting control over other people. I find that to be true across the whole spectrum of political thought. If we can control others through laws or policies or social pressure, then we can limit our own suffering. Isn't that such a contrast to Paul? Paul, who considers suffering a small cost to be able to live out his resurrection faith. Paul, who knows that suffering produces Christ-likeness. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church that has injured him deeply. Paul has been deeply hurt by this church. It's clear through his letters that he has known pain at the expense of the people who he is writing to in love, but he is writing to them in love. He's making himself vulnerable yet again to their rejection, to, to the hardship that they have placed on him because he's willing to endure hardship on their behalf if he can be used as an instrument of the gospel. I don't know what Paul's positions were on every issue of his day. I don't know them because he didn't make them central. I do know his posture. His posture is one of humility. It's one of prayer. It's one of trust and hope. Paul's posture is one of love. I would trust Paul with anything because his posture of love is more important to him than his position on issues. And I wonder, do your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends and relatives know you by your posture of love, your posture of sacrifice and obedience, or by your position on issues. When Paul quoted the psalm and said, I believed and so I spoke, he wasn't telling us about an opinion he held. He was telling us about a belief that flows out of experiencing resurrection life. He was inviting the church in Corinth to become a resurrection people. Paul was emboldened for the ministry, not because he had developed carefully arg careful arguments or because he could outwit his opponents, not because he was willing to shout louder or dominate conversations or bully his way into making a point. He was emboldened by the witness of Christ and the reality of the resurrection and the promise that he too would know the resurrection of Jesus. So what stops us? Have we made our positions primary, neglecting to be postured toward Christ? Have we become loud about our ideas and our opinions rather than emboldened by the realities of our faith? Has being right been more important to us than being like Jesus? And have we too 
use death as an instrument to control others? Is it possible that there is room for repenting of the things that we have made primary over Christ? You and I will never convince someone of the resurrection or the reality of God's kingdom without love. We can be bold on our own, and we will be a little more than a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. But if we are emboldened in Christ, uninhibited by the threat of death, and empowered by the gift of love, unhindered by the realities of the hardships we face because we become more like Christ as we face them, then the world may come to know Jesus through our witness. Then ours will be a testimony worth hearing because it will be a testimony of the power of Jesus in us. You are called to be ambassadors of the kingdom. You have been redeemed for this purpose. You have been equipped by the Spirit of God for this purpose. We are together the community of Christ for this purpose. And we are emboldened according to our resurrection faith for this purpose. So go. Go with purpose. Go with mission to live out this calling to be a kingdom people, a resurrection body, a people whose posture reflects the posture of Christ as we are being remade according to His likeness into a world that is still captive to a power that has already been defeated, the power of death. Go with the good news of the gospel that life and not death is victorious. Resurrection life is available to us, and it frees us to live a life worth living, unencumbered by the threat of death, but free to love fully and without fear and to live according to the realities of the kingdom of God, even today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sacred invitation to live according to the ways of your kingdom, to be uninhibited by the threat of death in all of death's forms, but to be empowered by the Spirit of God for the mission of God in a world being reshaped by God. Send us, Lord. Father, we pray that the world would come to know us by our posture, by our humility, by our love, by our orientation of love for you, rather than merely by our positions. rather than merely by our opinions. We pray, Father, that we would make love primary, that we would make communicating the gospel verbally and non-verbally primary, that the world in seeing us would come to see you. Embolden us according to your spirit, Embolden us, we pray, according to the hope that we have in the kingdom of God. Embolden us, Lord, to trust in our God who resurrects the dead. That death would no longer have grip over us, but we would live and love unhindered. 
Use us, we pray, Lord. Use us as your church. Use us as your people. We love you, Father. Amen.